Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm your host, Scott Gardner, and joining me for this episode is Michael Bailey, host of the Views from the Long Box podcast. Thank you for coming today, Michael. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. No problem. Well, we did the coin toss and I lost, so I'll go first. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are going back to January 1980 for Marvel Comics Micronauts number 13. Cover on this one is by Michael Golden, who always does just an exemplary job. Written by Bill Mantlo. Art on this one by Howard Chaikin and uh, and also Al Milgram. It doesn't say who specifically did what as far as pencils and inks, so I'm kind of assuming that Chaikin did the pencils and Milgram did the uh, the inks. Original cover price on this one was forty cents. Ah, oh, those were the days. And story title is Be It Ever So Deadly that I know I've read at least a thousand times in different comics over the years. Anyway, we start off this story and we see Bug is passed out in this field with all these weird-looking flying insects and bug-looking creatures and everything all around him. And he's all his helmet's all busted up and we're not sure exactly what's happened to him. This is uh, after the apparent defeat of Baron Karza. Now, I did not read any issues before this going into this. Uh, I mean, I read the original 12 issues when I was a kid, and I'm surprised by how little I actually remembered. So I'm kind of thrown into the middle of this story without knowing what's going on, which is cool. I actually enjoy that a lot. Anyway, Bug comes to, and he's frankly surprised that he's still alive. Apparently, something happened to him in the middle of some battle that he was in. He destroyed some spaceship or something, and it threw him into hyperspace. And now he wakes up in this field not not knowing where he even is, and he does some investigating. He climbs a tree to try to get his bearings and such, and he realizes and gets very excited about the fact that he is back on the planet Kalik Lak which apparently is his home planet. So he somehow, through lucky happenstance, got thrown by this blast back to where he actually came from originally. And he's very excited. He sees the city that he's actually from, and he goes running towards it, and he's running down this hill, when all of a sudden the thought hits him, wait a minute. You know, he's an outcast on his own planet. He was actually driven off the planet at Spear Point, and he really can't go back to where he's from because it's basically taken over by Baron Karza's, what they call colonial troops. So it's kind of like the, to use a Star Wars analogy, it's like the Empire's in control of the city, and he's a rebel, so he can't, he can't just go barging back into the city. So he ducks into some nearby trees, and he sees this uh, this lorry come driving up, which is really cool. It's it's actually driven by two snails. It looks a lot like Gandalf's uh, thing where he comes into the beginning of Lord of the Rings, you know, when he comes to visit Frodo yeah. and those guys, but only it's driven by snails, which is absolutely hysterical to me. He comes down out of the tree, snags the driver, and I'm not sure exactly what he intended to do, if he was going to clobber this guy or, or what he was going to do, but... He grabs the guy and then realizes he actually knows this guy. This guy is the one who, he just says, trained him in the tricks of the trade, which I don't know exactly what Bug's trade is. I don't know if he's a warrior or what, but anyway, this guy is an old friend of his, kind of his his mentor, so to speak. And the guy brings him up to speed, you know, he's really surprised to see him at first, and then brings Bug up to speed on what's been going on with his people and such since he's been gone. And Bug asks him about, you know, the old gang, what's what's up with them and what have they been up to. And the old man says that, while they haven't really been up to anything, they've just been kind of hiding out at the old lair. 
ever since this guy named Wart Staff took over. And I just like to point wow. out that uh, you know, looking back to the '80s, you know, apparently they didn't have a cream or something for uh, Wart Staff back in the day, but I'm pretty sure that we can cure that now. Somebody's been reading too much Tolkien. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so. Bug is really upset to learn this. Uh, apparently, there's a thing with him and, and Wartstaff, which we'll get to. There's a brief one-page interlude, which I, I'm sure leads either from something or to something, but I wasn't sure exactly what to make of it. It's just a, a darkened room. Apparently, it has something to do with S.H.I.E.L.D., because although we never see the guy, we, we just see a dark silhouette. I'm pretty sure that the guy giving orders in this part is supposed to be Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D., and he's sending off this courier guy to some mysterious place, and he's got a briefcase, and inside the briefcase looks like a little Micronaut spaceship and some of the actual Micronauts. So where this guy is going and what his mission is is a little bit mysterious. So we cut back to Bug, and he and the old man are sneaking up on Bug's old hideout. And there's a guy, a guard out front, but the guard's standing there snoozing, and Bug is, you know, easily dispatches the guy. And we go inside the hideout, and this hideout to me reminded me an awful lot of like Peter Pan's hideout, you know, from the from the Peter Pan stories. You know, it's in this like hollowed out tree and everything. It actually looks pretty cool. And we see this this guy, this wart staff, is you know one of Bug's people, but he's like this big, fat, bearded, just kind of scummy-looking pirate sort of bug. And he's taken over the old gang, and he's demanding more food and more grog and all this when Bug comes storming in and basically is challenging him for to resume control of his old gang. Wartstaff fires off a blaster bolt at him, but uh, Bug is able to, to turn the tables on him and, and get the upper, upper hand. But then Bug's old troops that are now Wartstaff's troops, they actually defend Wartstaff. They believe that Bug abandoned them. That's what Wartstaff had told them, that he had basically sold out and joined the Colonials. They don't even realize that apparently Bug was, was abducted against his will and taken by the Colonials. So he has to fight off the troops. He does get some help by uh, this Jasmine girl, which I wasn't quite sure who she is, if she's an old girlfriend or just a, a female ally or what exactly the story was. Bug gets the upper hand and... Wartstaff is is doing some fast talking to try to save his own skin, and it almost looks like they're about to come to an agreement when Wartstaff starts to pull a knife on Bug. It's uh, it's revealed in this sequence that Wartstaff is actually Bug's father, which seems to come completely out of the blue. He's you know just <laughs> almost as a save his skin maneuver. He he literally does say, uh, "You wouldn't kill your own father, would you?" And I'm like, "Well, wait, this is just now coming up that this guy is his father." So it seemed really strange. So as he's saying this, you see him reaching behind his back for a knife, and you know he's trying to to disarm Bug with with the old you know, "Well, I'm your father" ploy. When Jasmine comes up and blocks the knife, and also cuts Wartstaff's antenna off. <laughs> so it's, it's a great little scene. And wow. so he's uh, disarmed. He's, he doesn't have his antenna. He's basically helpless at this point. But then some of the gang are still not convinced that, that they want to be back under Bug's command, so they draw their, their pistols on him, and they're, they're prepared to defend uh, Wartstaff. When Jasmine throws a knife and, and impales one of the guys and then another guy gets blasted. 
So then it becomes, you know, the old, you know, well, does anybody else want to challenge my authority type of thing? We cut to the uh, the home world, which I always like the home world in, in the Micronauts. I'd forgotten this because it's been so long since I read this, but the home world wasn't really a planet so much as it was like a molecular chain. So it's actually pretty cool looking. Wow. And we see... I, I've never read the Micronauts, so oh, was, see, it's lost on this one. <laughs> it, it's been so long since I've read this that it, it really was almost like a, a, a whole new discovery for me because i thought that i would i would really remember this and i'd be totally up to speed and it's like wow i either didn't know this or forgot it and so it it was really interesting to almost rediscover it as a brand new thing to be honest with you (laughs) and we see the uh the commander commander ron and he's recovered from some injuries that he sustained apparently in battle with baron karza and he and uh princess mary are talking and she decides to basically give up her her claim to the throne of her world in order to continue her adventures with Commander Ron and the rest of the Micronauts. And you know, in this in this particular part, the other Micronauts only consist of Biotron and Microtron. Acroyer has gone back to his own world and they don't know where Bug is. They're assuming Bug is dead at this point. So then we cut back to final panel of the book is Bug is back in command of his troops and in a scene kind of like uh, kind of reminded me of uh, like Return of the Jedi when they're when they're plotting to try to break into the bunker they're up on this hill and they're looking down at the colonial forces and trying to decide you know whether they believe that they have a, a big enough rebel force basically to go down and storm the colonial air terminal and try to reclaim the planet from the uh, from the colonial governor and that's pretty much where the issue ends and uh, I gotta say I really enjoyed it I I was a little bit lost I was amazed by how very little I remember of the of the micronauts because I read. I'm pretty sure Michael Golden was the guy, was the artist on the original 12 issues. So I yes, know I've read that. That I do know. And so I'm I'm shocked by how little I remembered because I that holds such a special place, you know, in in my in my heart and in my what I thought my memory, you know, as from a kid being one of my favorite series. So I've definitely got to go back and refresh myself on the original 12 issues, but I enjoyed this so much, and a lot of what I enjoyed about it was the very Star Wars-y flavor. Everything you described in this sounds like, wow, these guys really watch Star Wars, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to ride that line between outliers. It's like they they watched Star Wars and then went home and read Lord of the Rings (laughs) and, and decided that they wanted to make a combo, which is kind of ironic when you think that Howard Chaykin drew this. And Howard Chaykin actually drew the first like six or seven issues of the Marvel Star Wars, comic. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it kind of fits in a weird way. Well, I am a huge fan of Marvel Star Wars. Uh, you know, as as anybody who knows that listens to to Two True Freaks, you know, our, our Star Wars Monthly Monday episodes. You know, we review those uh, that series in order, and so you know, I'm I'm huge on that. And any opportunity I get to stumble across. Something that will take me back to that feeling I had reading those comics as a kid, you know, I, I seize upon. And, you know, right now, one of the other things I discovered, actually by the same writer, is Rom Space Knight, which I'd only ever read scattered issues of over the years. But now that I have that complete series, I'm slowly making my way through that. 
and Rom is a really good book, but it, it's of the same general flavor, but it's not quite enough like Star Wars, whereas this really feels a lot like Star Wars. And I, I got, I just got a real kick out of it. I really liked the vibe I got from, from this one. And now I'm curious to, to read more of them because I only ever read one or two post Michael golden issues and they were way beyond number 12. I want to say they were in the thirties and the fifties and something like that. And I remember being lost and I don't know who the artist is in those later issues, but just not being all that enthralled with it. But, you know, I'm I'm older now, and I can appreciate other styles of art than I could when I was a kid and stuff. So now I'm really curious to continue with the Micronauts and see where this particular storyline goes and where the characters wind up and that sort of thing. And I'm really curious, you know, if Baron Karza really is dead and they basically bumped off what is their Darth Vader in the first 12 issues, then how are they able to sustain or for the series for as long as it ran. I, I wish I, I wish I could contribute a little to that, but I've, I I I used to own a run of Micronauts, but somehow it's it's gone away. I don't know what happened to it, but I bought it very cheap. Uh, but you know, I've always kind of liked Michael Golden's art. Oh yes, yeah, me too. Always been a Golden fan. I wish he had done more. I don't know if he's coming to Dragon Con this year. He, he was is. He is. Oh, I he wasn't is? sure if I should comment on that. Yeah, he is. He's going to be there. And uh, yes, I'm definitely looking forward to trying to get him to uh, to sign something. More than likely, what I'll, what I'll try to get him sign is actually a Micronauts. Because uh, back when I was a kid, Micronauts number one for a short time was almost like the Hulk 181 of its day. I mean, it was huge and you couldn't touch it. And I chanced across one in a in a back issue bin in Canada of all places, which on um, I don't remember what I paid for it, but it was fairly cheap, and uh, and that was always one of my prized possessions. And of course today I think you can buy that book for probably fifty cents, you know, somewhere. Yeah, Micronauts unfortunately has been relegated to the to the fifty cent bin. I didn't really start seriously buying comics until about nineteen eighty seven. Before then, I would just pick up here and there what kind of looked good and if it had the Hulk on the cover I was more likely to buy it than anything because I was a huge fan wow. of the television series but uh, I do remember hearing something and, and reading about the fact that Micronauts used to be this insanely popular book mm-hmm. uh, before the, the toy line just kind of fa- it lasted longer than the toy line did Oh yeah, if I'm remembering correctly and Marvel always had a better track record with toy uh, tie-in comic books uh, mm-hmm. Than DC did. They got most of the licenses. I mean, I, I think DC had Mask and Cops, and I think those were their two ones that actually went into beyond a miniseries, right? Because Marvel just <laughs> Marvel saw there was gold in them, their hills after Star Wars, <laughs> and decided to snap up everything. And then there was the media juggernauts that were GI Joe and Transformers. So you you couldn't freaking stop them in the eighties. Yeah, and and even Rom. I mean, Rom ran for what seventy something issues, and was you know infinitely more popular than the toy that that inspired it. You know, the toy kind of came and went, but the book you know plowed on for several years. So, well, I'm glad you have an entire run because they're never going to collect that. So, yeah, I know. Marvel doesn't have the rights anymore to the character. In fact, is he even around? Because you hear every once in a while like Space Knight. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I keep wondering, you know, tangentially, is, is that ROM or is that what they have to call ROM now? My understanding that they, is that they own the world that they created for ROM and certain yeah. things, but the character itself they can't play with. Which actually, that, that brings us back to Micronauts because it's my understanding that the character of Bug is a Marvel character. Because I know that there was a Bug one-shot several years ago. I picked it up somewhere and I still have never read it. But, I think he's a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy now. Oh, you know what? I think you're right. I think I did hear that recently on a, on another show. You're right. So, yeah, they have him. But as far as the rest of the Micronauts, I don't think they can play with any of the rest of them. But Bug, um, they own. Yeah, that's that's right. All right. Are we, are we ready for my choice? Sure. Okay. I'm going back to cover date December 1978. So that means it probably came out in September of that year to Superman, number 330, which also has a cover price of now 40 cents. Uh, I know. That just that makes me sad. Uh, <laughs> there, is a, there is a thing above the Superman logo exclusive, Superman Secret Revealed, and the cover has Superman with his glasses on talking to Lana Lang. It's drawn by... Ross Andrew and inked by Dick Giordano. It says, Lana, now do you believe I'm Clark Kent? And Lana says, and she's pointing to a photograph. And she goes, of course not. What kind of idiot do you take me for? This is what Clark Kent looks like. And at the bottom, it says, revealed at last the startling secret of how Superman fools the world with his Clark Kent identity, a secret endangered by the sinister schemes of the Spellbinder. So basically, this story is meant to put to, to rest why Clark Kent can put on a pair of glasses and fool everybody. And the answer <laughs> is so goofy, it's not even funny. So, so this was a time when they were still doing splash pages as showing a scene from the comic to kind of set things up. The cover within the book, I guess you could say. And after the the usual rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kello grew to, ch- to manhood on Earth, and explaining, you know, why he's Superman. And, you know, he battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. And this was post-1976, so created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster is in there. And basically what you have on the first page is this shot framed within a pair of glasses, and on one lens you have Superman, on the other you have the Spellbinder, and he's hitting Superman with this weird like disc on his chest, and it asks, when is a secret identity not a secret identity? And it just kind of teases at, at the astounding secret you're about to find out in a story titled The Master Mesmerizer of Metropolis. Uh, script by Marty Pasco, based on a story concept by Al Schroeder III. Art by Kurt Swan and Frank Chiaramonte, who were a pretty solid team on both Superman and Action around this time. Lettering by the immortal Ben Oda, coloring by Adrian Roy, and edited by Julius Schwartz. Story opens with a satellite that is about to crash right into the WGBS building. And you have Lois Lane, Lana Lang, Jimmy Olsen, and Clark Kent watching. And they're like, hey, Clark, change into Superman. And he's all like, what, what are you talking about? They're like, look, we've humored you for this long, but we know you're Superman. There's no time. Go stop the satellite. And Jimmy even rips his shirt open, all to have Clark wake up as it is a nightmare. <laughs> and, and Clark is thinking to himself, you know, 
how do I fool these people with a pair of glasses? They're not idiots. You know, his line of dialogue is, Superman wearing glasses is what I look like. But what else should I expect? Ordinary people start wearing glasses to their friends say, who are you? No, they say, oh, you got glasses. And he was like, who was I trying to kid when I dreamed up that ridiculous disguise? And he thinks back to that he was actually a kid when he came up with the disguise. And he goes to work, and for some reason he takes a bus. I have no idea. Maybe he wants to support mass transit. <laughs> uh, I'm really confused by this, because normally when we see Superman approaching the WGBS building, he's flying into it. And suddenly... Well, I, I'll, if you don't mind me interrupting, I will say, I appreciate him at least taking the bus, and you know, I would imagine he has to pay and everything, which contributes yes. something to the local economy, whereas... You know, I just went off about the fact a while back in Superman Family that Supergirl owns a car. And I, to me, people that fly have no business owning a car. You're just – you're wasting the, the, the non-renewable resources that the rest of us need to, to get on with our puny little non-superpowered lives. <laughs> so suddenly the, the bus swerves to avoid crashing into an armored car and uh, – Clark notices that a bunch of cars are kind of careening wildly on the street. And before we get to the next page, we are treated to an ad. It's a hostess ad. It's a hostess ad in the 70s that's not a comic book strip, which was kind of surprising. It actually, it's advertising free wacky TV show cards you can get on 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 the back of hostess Twinkies or cupcakes or, you know, fruit pies or whatever. And, And one of them is Barnaby Bones. So I, I guess it's trying to be funny. And they even have a shot of a kid like laughing at the card and crying. And I'm like, you know, even even a kid at that age would not think Barnaby Bones w- w- would have been all that funny. I mean, w- would a kid even be whiting, watching Barnaby Jones in that era? Oh, my grandparents used to watch that show, and I dreaded it. We used to make such fun of it because here was Jed Clampett who, you know, he had to be about 90 years old even back then, <laughs> running around taking down bad guys. And I was like, okay, this, you know. I can buy a guy in a cape flying around, but I can't buy Buddy Ebsen taking down thugs. I just was not believable to me. So it turns out that the cause of this disturbance is this guy in a really funky, weird costume floating in the sky, and everyone gets off the bus, and Clark ducks down a manhole, changes into Superman, uh, leading to a, an amusing bit of dialogue saying, Sid, did you just feel something like a sudden gust of wind? Wind in a sewer? Harvey, don't be stupid. And, and basically it shows all of these people helping this criminal rip off the back of the armored car. And Superman goes to attack him, and he punches him in the jaw, but it turns out not to hurt this guy because he's got this super shock-absorbing chin guard. So this guy's really thought it through. I'm really impressed with it. And he introduces himself as Spellbinder. And if you'd like to know what that name means, take a look down there. And he says, run, little girl, run. And the little girl runs in front of a taxi cab. So instead of Superman swooping down and taking the girl out of the way of the taxi, he uses his super breath to suck the taxi in the air. So (laughs) I have to admit, it's interesting visually. And I guess... When you get to the point where you've you've drawn Superman for as long as Kurt Swan has done so at this point, that saving a little girl is probably old hat by now. 
Um, so I, I appreciate the ingenuity of using Super Breath in this matter. So Spellbinder hits him with this disc thing on his uh, on his chest, and Superman suddenly sees this water creature floating out of a fountain, and he starts fighting it, and then all these people are coming around going, Superman, what are you doing? Because to them, it looks like Superman is just struggling with nothing, and he realizes that it was an illusion, and that Spellbinder's power is super hypnotism. He hypnotized these people and me into acting strangely. Cut to the Galaxy Communications building, where Lana is being introduced to Martin H. Corda, the new associate producer, on the 6 o'clock, six o'clock report. And their meeting does not go well, because, uh, yeah, he calls her Ms. Lang, and she says, that's Miss Lang, and he's like, whatever. And he's got, you know, a word balloon that looks like it's chilly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's what we have here. And <laughs> basically, it's his first day here. He tried to get to his job a couple issues back in 317, but he was attacked by Metallo and spent the time in a sanitarium. And he's one of these guys that wears a sport coat and kind of an ascot type thing. And he, he smokes a pipe, oh, and he has a mustache, so you know he's pretty useless as a human being. <laughs> because anybody that dresses like that and uh, wear, wears an ascot, I mean, they have way too much time on their hand. They're, they're the type of people that go home and, and re-listen to NPR just in case they missed something that day. Um, but suddenly, this giant <laughs> television appears in midair, and uh, Superman's on the screen, and he, he tells everybody that Spellbinder, a dangerous... Criminal possessing super hypnotic powers is at large, and in the, and Mayor Harkness has declared a state of emergency. So Superman's like, "Okay, everybody, he's going to hypnotize you. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hypnotize you, and it's going to make you not do anything that you would do while being hypnotized." So he takes out a watch. Not kidding. Takes out a watch, and you know you're getting sleepy, oh, sleepy. Man. Look at my hand. See a sleep. Sorry, that's a really bizarre Mystery <laughs> Science Theater 3000 reference that about three people are probably going to get. So after he's done, Superman has the giant television land, and he goes to change back into Clark Kent. And in the middle of tucking in his shirt, I guess his super hearing cut off, Lo, uh, Lana and the, and the new producer walk in, and they talk to him as if he's Superman, even though he's got his glasses on. And he's kind of confused. So he kind of tries to play it off. He goes, well, to combat the Spellbinder, I was going to assume a disguise. And and Lana's like, that is just much too obvious. Who are you supposed to be disguised at? And he's like, well, you know, my good friend Clark Kent. She goes, you look nothing like Clark Kent. And this just really confuses Superman. Because he has no idea how these people could walk in, see him partly dressed, and be like, what in the heck is going on? I mean... It's just a it's just a funny scene, especially the conversation Lana and and Superman have about how she used to think he was Clark Kent, but now she's just completely convinced that they look nothing alike. So then they get word that Spellbinders uh, been spotted at Norwich Sound Laboratory, and Superman goes to fight him, but the hypnosis hits him again, and he thinks he doesn't have any superpowers. And he explains how he was just this common thug in Gotham City, and now he's just amped up his power, and, and he gets away. But 
at which point Superman realizes that he never lost his powers. He was just hypnotized again. And he's got this look, and he's got his fist in the air, and he's like, fie, fie on you. That, that's at least what it looks like. That's not the, <laughs> the, 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 the dialogue, uh, which would have been better. So he finally realizes that it's not hypnotism as in sight that is that is hypnotizing people and he notices this weird homing sound and he follows the sound and he sees this man in normal clothes walking across a bridge and he uses his heat vision to burn the clothes away and it turns out that it's a spellbinder and he lands and once again tries to use super hypnotism one of the goofiest superpowers he ever had he's like look into my eyes look and obey you will surrender and he's like, yes, I'll surrender in a pig's eye. And he runs away and tries to escape. He hits Superman with the disc again. And he's like, and he tells Superman to go away. And Superman goes, I'll go away, but I'm taking you with me. And they fly off into the outskirts of town. Superman digs this giant trench and basically reveals that he, he realized that it wasn't a visual hypnotism, that it was the sound that was hypnotizing people, and he takes out his earplugs. And Spellbinder tries to hit him with the who's he, what's it on his chest again, but it turns out in digging the trench, he dug a giant echo chamber, and it knocks Spellbinder out, and that's when Superman realizes that he's wearing these special lenses that that have prevented him from being able to hypnotize Superman. And it turns out that this device on his chest is a record player. Ah, as I suspected, a miniature phonograph. Now I recognize the white disc, one of Norwich's lab's high-frequency sound effect records used in their sonar experiments. That's why he was raiding Norwich, to replenish his record supply. That was the big plan. I'm going to steal from a laboratory so I can get these records so I can hypnotize people, but I have to keep going back to the same laboratory. So, you know, he's got everything wrapped up, and he goes back and changes back into Clark Kent and meets with uh, one of the staff artists at the at WGBS who he's released from the hypnotic suggestion he put everyone under before. And what he did is he had this artist draw a picture of Superman and a picture of Clark Kent based off of photographs. And the Superman picture looks like Superman. But the Clark Kent picture, I mean, Clark's got, you know, he's kind of got a widow's peak going, his hairline's receding, his chin's a little not as, you know, like he doesn't have that lantern jaw that Superman has. And he looks just a whole lot older. And this is when Superman realizes... God, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. This is when Superman realizes that <laughs> when he was a kid and started using as glasses the pieces of the, the windshield from his rocket ship, that for his entire life, he has been subconsciously hypnotizing people to look at Clark Kent and Superman differently. And now that he is on television every night, that hypnotism has been going over the airwaves. And, you know, he thinks back to when a guard saw him from behind and then looked at him from the front and said, wow, you looked a lot bigger from from the back. And this is how they explain 
that Clark Kent and Superman look nothing alike and how he's able to get away from it. Because he's been hypnotizing people. (laughs) This story was told once, and I don't think it was ever mentioned again. I mean, I I, I honestly see why they came up with it. Uh, uh, Martin Pascoe probably thought, I'm going to explain, you know, because that that glasses thing is so darn silly. I'm going to explain why he's able to do it. But, you know, it's... It's such a goofy damn story. Oh, yes. I mean, I like it. I like a lot of the Bronze Age Superman stuff. And Martin Pascoe usually wrote some of the better Superman stories. He, he really had a good handle on Superman as a character. And, and to start the dream with, I mean, to start the story with a nightmare, I thought was really interesting. Because it gets him thinking about what, you know, the plot of the story becomes. And you get to see Superman in his pajamas. <laughs> I don't know why Superman has to wear pajamas, but he does. And I really can't hate the story, but the character's name is Spellbinder, and he's got a record player on his chest. Well, not to uh, mention the fact that he's got to be one of the top ten worst-dressed supervillains of all time. Yes, it is. I mean, I mean, half of his outfit looks like the floor of a 50s diner, and then the <laughs> other half is just... Or it's, oh, it's a horrid, horrid-looking outfit. He looks like a bee. <laughs> there's no way to... Because uh, he's got the propeller on his back, too, that allows him to fly. I don't know how... Oh, that okay. See, I'm just looking at the cover um, the cover image, and, and it's got the little... Oh, that, that circle behind him is his propeller. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was just a dynamic, you know, a dynamic shot, a dynamic bubble. Behind. Oh, okay. No, that 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 to me is his. And and, and Lana looks so goofy on this cover. All right, I, mean, I, really I hate t- to ask this, but okay, if that's supposed to be a propeller whirring around, then if you go to what I'm assuming would be the center where the propeller is spinning from, is it coming out of his ass then? Because that's pretty much where it looks like the center of the propeller. In that shot, yes. Inside the book, no. It's coming from his back. (laughs) Oh, it's disturbing on so many levels. But when you ask me to come on the show, I'm like, if I got to choose a back issue to talk about, this has to be the one. Oh, yeah. So darn goofy. Well, I, this came out four months before the first movie did. Oh, wow. So, I didn't realize so, that. Yeah, you're right. Oh, my god! And uh, the Superman books really picked up around that point. Uh, the, 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 the issues of action that came out around the time of Superman the movie were excellent. Mm-hmm. There was this whole story of him going back to Smallville and discovering the history of the S symbol. And there was the... Brainiac making him see the destruction of Krypton, which makes his powers go wild, and there's that cover of him flying along with his heat vision blaring. It's just a really neat era, and this is part of it. And it doesn't really fit. Yeah, I I didn't recognize the number, but I looked up the cover image real quick while you, while you were talking, and, and as soon as you started to describe it, I was like, oh, I remember this story. But what's funny is, you know, it, it's really funny what your memory retains and what it doesn't, because